0: Hello, and welcome to History Soundbites, a podcast in which historians present their current research and leave us all feeling smarter and more informed for their efforts. Today's podcast features Dr. Joe Fickosh, professor of history at Central Arizona College and instructor at Southern New Hampshire University. His presentation, A Party in Peril, Franklin Roosevelt, the Democratic Party, and the Circular Letter of 1924. Sit back and enjoy. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Joe Fakash. I am a professor of history at Central Arizona College, and I teach history for Southern New Hampshire University. I'm going to discuss today my dissertation that I wrote a year ago about Franklin Roosevelt, the Democratic Party, and the Circular Letter of 1924. When I first started the doctoral program at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio, I really didn't have in my mind set a project I knew that I was interested in politics in the 20th century. I'd written my master's thesis on James Cox and his Western campaign in 1920, where he fatefully <laughs> tried to visit every state. He did not go to the South, but he did make it out west, the first presidential candidate to do so. And, you know, in a fateful trip, trying to unseat the frontrunner, Warren Harding. And uh, both candidates were from the state of Ohio, so there was a lot of local resources that I was able to call from. I thought when writing my dissertation that I would compare James Cox's uh, unsuccessful campaign in 1920 against Harry Truman's very successful campaign uh, 28 years later, 1948, where he had a come-from-behind victory over Thomas Dewey. When starting to accumulate some of the resources I wanted to use for my dissertation, I, of course, wanted to research pretty extensively the Democratic Party during the 1920s and early 1930s. I found mentions of what was known as a circular letter, which is a letter that is sent out with the expectation that the reply would then be sent back to that original sender. And Franklin Roosevelt used these documents in 1924 to send out and solicit uh, the opinions of Democrats both at the top of the party and uh, the lay people, the voters, and to get some, some great feedback about where the party was at this kind of crucial moment. It is my opinion that looking at the circular letter in 1924, we get a good sense of both where the Democratic Party was from people both large and small and we get a good sense of the maturation of Franklin Roosevelt at a kind of fateful time as he's starting to find his political bearings and really develop an ideology for himself that, of course, would be instrumental in understanding his political ideology as president and some of the guiding principles that he would then have. The circular letter is all located at Hyde Park, New York, Uh, with the Franklin Roosevelt Library, and I was able to get my hands on those documents through different grants. Once there, I was able to start putting together what would eventually become my dissertation, and so I'll walk you through, you know, some of the major parts of it. It's important to kind of back up and get a sense of where both the Democratic Party and Franklin Roosevelt were in 1924. I'll start first with the Democratic Party. In 1924, the Democratic Party was at one of its lowest points, Certainly in the 19-teens, we'd had the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. It's important to remember that Woodrow Wilson won his first election only because of a split in the Republican Party between the incumbent William Howard Taft and the insurgent former president, Theodore Roosevelt, who ran as a bull moose or progressive. When he came up for re-election in 1916, Woodrow Wilson eked out a very small victory over uh, the associate justice, Charles Evans Hughes. So his political mandate was really not much to speak of. Once the war ended in 1918, Woodrow Wilson spent his political capital and his physical health on a faded effort to try to secure America's entry into his pet project, the League of Nations, which he sincerely believed would stave off any kind of future war. The Republicans in Congress, of course, were opposed to Article 10, which was going to make explicit American entry whenever any member nation uh, went up against another one. That, of course, was very scary to a lot of Americans who, up until World War I, had considered themselves to be a neutral country, one that kind of prided itself on staying out of other peoples and certainly uh, some of the European nation's uh, interests. So Woodrow Wilson's efforts certainly did not bode well for uh, either his own health. He suffered a stroke in 1918 uh, that he never really recovered from, and the party was kind of left in shambles thereafter. James Cox wins the nomination in 1920 really only because of the split nature of that political convention. In his effort to try to win the presidency, he went around the country pledging both that he would be his own independent individual, but then also promising fellow Democrats that he would not leave Woodrow Wilson's project, the League of Nations, at bay. It was an awful attempt to try to have a foot in both camps and the plain spoken and rather unintelligent warren harding was able to win by not really saying much of anything in his front porch campaign that he held in marion ohio warren harding was able to kind of bamboozle the american people who were hungry for a what he called return to normalcy the Democratic Party really didn't recover from that point. You were going to have these divisions within the party about prohibition, with some Democrats supporting efforts to make uh, illegal the uh, production and sale and transport of alcohol, while other Democrats were uh, much less obsessed with that issue. The League of Nations remained kind of a uh, important Uh, contention between the different factions of the democratic party we were starting to see the beginnings of a rural urban divide we had democrats split over the issues of the tariff and uh, a return to nativism with the growth of the ku klux klan in some of our urban and rural areas in both the north and the south and you know certainly in places like oregon um so the Democratic Party was in almost complete disarray when in 1924 they come to the political convention in Madison Square Garden in New York City, and it was a face-off between two very um, positive candidates in William Gibbs McAdoo and uh, Governor Al Smith. Uh, William Gibbs McAdoo was the former Secretary of the Treasury, happened to be Woodrow Wilson's son-in-law, and Al Smith was the governor of New York. And on almost every issue, those two men had a complete disagreement with one another. Going into the convention, it was very clear that neither man was going to be able to win over the uh, assured majority. The requirement at that time was a two-thirds majority, which, you know, back in earlier times seemed fair, that you would have the candidate be you know, kind of acclaimed by the entire convention, but in this election with such a fractious um, division between two positive candidates, um, that was going to be impossible. And so McAdoo and Al Smith went into that convention knowing that they likely would not be the victor, but that they could also spoil the chances of their opponent. Famously, Al Smith asked Franklin Roosevelt to deliver his nominating speech, When Franklin Roosevelt asked why, Al Smith's friend, uh, Judge Praskauer, said, because Al Smith's a Bowery mick and you could rub some of that stink off of him, meaning that the patrician nature of the Roosevelt family, which Franklin Roosevelt, of course, was the fifth cousin of now former president and recently deceased Theodore Roosevelt, that Though they were the same state and had come up in the Democratic ranks together, there was a very marked difference between Al Smith and Franklin Roosevelt. To get his assent and the friendly recommendation of Franklin Roosevelt meant a lot to the candidacy of Al Smith. For Franklin Roosevelt, of course, this was going to be a return to the political arena after he had had a devastating physical illness. Franklin Roosevelt, it's important to know, was an an only child in upstate New York along the Hudson River. His parents were um, separated in age by almost 30 years, and so Franklin Roosevelt was um, an only child, kind of kept away from other children. That's important to note that when he goes to both an all-boys school and eventually to college, he was a sickly man. He had several uh, bouts with illnesses that he uh, would suffer from, both in his rise as a politician and when he served as assistant secretary of the Navy during World War I. And these give us insight into just how vulnerable he was to contagion. In 1920, he was asked to be the vice presidential candidate uh, by the Democratic Convention. And much of that was based on the fact that he was Theodore Roosevelt's fifth cousin. He had married Theodore's niece, uh, Eleanor. And so nominating a Roosevelt certainly was meant to confuse some voters to think that, you know, he was Teddy's nephew or brother or some other closer relation and not the fifth uh, cousin. They were from two different political parties, it's important to note. The candidacy, of course, like I had mentioned before, for L, for uh, James Cox was unsuccessful, and so Franklin Roosevelt uh, did suffer the defeat of losing the vice presidency in 1920, but none of that was then laid at the feet of, of Franklin Roosevelt. He came away looking like a rising star in the party. A year later, however, he then was exposed to a virus, and the de- over exactly how this illness got uh, infected. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt is you know, still the source of a lot of different conjecture, but what I've read and can kind of conclude is that Franklin Roosevelt probably was infected after visiting a Boy Scout camp in the summer of 1921 when he went home to Campobello Island or on vacation to Campabello Island with his family. He suffers this paralysis where one day he's out with his family swimming putting out a forest fire and running around an island and later that day he gets the chills he can't walk and um is then uh, never to regain the use of his legs the full use of his legs over those next few weeks as Franklin Roosevelt's life kind of hung in the balance there was a lot of you know intense skepticism uh, about what the future of Franklin Roosevelt's political career would be. It's important to note today how difficult it is to imagine a presidential candidate who doesn't walk around and look healthy, if we think to the 2016 election and all of the uh, debate about the health of both candidates at, at their um, age. For Franklin Roosevelt, this was also kind of doubled by The Nature of the Illness, it was titled Infantile Paralysis, which just by that name makes it sound like it's a a child's disease. Franklin Roosevelt then had his wife and his uh, assistant, Louis Howe, working behind the scenes to kind of keep his spirits up and make sure that he had something to kind of look forward to. As 1924 approached, Franklin Roosevelt had been out of the scene for quite some time, uh, there was a lot of intense interest in Franklin Roosevelt's well being. He liked to maintain in a lot of his correspondence that he was close to walking again. Maybe that was an effort to um, make those around him feel less noticing of, of his illness, but maybe it was also an effort to kind of buoy his uh, energy and his you know, intense optimism. But when Al Smith came around in 1924 to ask him to give the nominating speech for him at the convention, Franklin Roosevelt rose to the occasion, and at that convention, while everybody else kind of reached the, low, the, the very lowest that we could get as a uh, political party in the United States, Franklin Roosevelt kind of comes out of that convention looking pretty good. He gives a nominating speech for Al Smith where he titles him the Happy Warrior, and uh, is able to kind of remind people of the political acumen that had been Franklin Roosevelt before this illness. At the convention, he makes the walk to the rostrum, helped by his sons. Everybody was pretty aware of what that disease had done to him, but you know, other than his frailty walking out, he looked like the healthy Roosevelt of old because of um, the crutches and his use of his arms to propel his wheelchair Uh, his upper body was way more in shape than it had been before so he does take on that kind of healthier patina so he comes out of the convention looking great the democratic party has never looked worse than at that moment Um, this is a convention that it should be noted it took 103 ballots to find a nominee both Al Smith and William Gibbs McAdoo, given only after the other one has given up, (laughs) and they can then let the nomination go to John W. Davis, uh, governor of West Virginia, who had really no chance then to win. That convention is also notable in that the Democratic Party had the opportunity to vote, um, like the Republicans a few weeks before, on uh, denouncing the Ku Klux Klan, the nativist group that was, you know, roaming the countryside, uh, and reminding Americans of just how much they, uh, wanted to protect what they considered to be the, uh, America first kind of mentality and had opened up their umbrella of hatred to not just include African Americans, but other immigrants, uh, Mexicans, Catholics, Jews, literally anybody who wasn't, uh, a white, landed elite person from from before. And so the party uh, has a rough time in some of its rural areas, and especially in the South, where some of those senators and governors and representatives were themselves members of the Ku Klux Klan or knew that their political future depended on those members of the Ku Klux Klan. And so it really is a kind of shocking moment when that plank in the party platform at the 24 convention fails by one vote uh, to denounce the Ku Klux Klan. And so the Democratic Party, not just because of that, but also the intense disarray and the uh, candidacy of Robert La Follette as a progressive in that election, Uh, John W. Davis will receive one of the lowest vote tallies. He receives about 29% of the popular vote and so is roundly defeated. So that brings us to the circular letter. In November... Of 1924, Franklin Roosevelt uh, is sending letters to other Democrats. Um, Namely, he does send a letter to um, one of the former secretaries and starts to outline what will eventually become this effort. Now, we can be cynical about (laughs) the notion that uh, Franklin Roosevelt wanted to use that new or renewed interest from the political party to propel his, you know, political future forward. Or we can look at it as Franklin Roosevelt actually wanting to reform the Democratic Party and make it stronger and more viable. In any case, he does begin this process of sending out a... Letter um, where he's going to then ask for responses from fellow Democrats about the future of the uh, political party. And one of the things that's important to note, uh, one of the big parts that Franklin Roosevelt really wants to do is try to figure out what the political party's identity is. What does it mean to be a Democrat? And that's going to be one of the intense features that Franklin Roosevelt is kind of faced with during this process. Certainly, the Democratic Party was at odds with itself and with splits both from rural and urban communities, um, this kind of sectional divide where Northern Democrats looked very differently at Southern Democrats now, the Southern Democrats kind of had a point when they would complain in these letters about, Frank, uh, about the nominating convention, where they often were the most reliable area in the country in terms of voting for whoever the Democrats nominated. But at the political conventions, they were often overlooked, and it had been some time since a true Southerner had been the political party nominee. Um, Woodrow Wilson, of course, is born in Virginia, but he's elected as the governor of New Jersey. And so that's keeping with this kind of complaint that those Southerners had, that um, the party kind of took their position for granted. Some of the other major complaints in the first, when, when Franklin Roosevelt wanted to set out this letter, he wanted to outline things that he felt like most Democrats could uh, kind of agree about. Uh, he wanted to make sure that all everybody could get off on on kind of the same f- uh, foot, and so he said that uh, the Democrats needed to do a better job of functioning throughout the year that they couldn't just wait until election years, which you know does seem like it would be pretty straightforward. Uh, the second point he thought that they should be working with the state parties a little bit closer, and if they sound like they're not you know, brainstorm ideas, it's because they really (laughs) weren't. These were ideas, again, that uh, lend us to look at him forming a consensus. Like, despite all of our differences, we can at least agree on these things. One of the other things that was plaguing the Democratic Party was funding. Uh, The party's nominees were usually on the hook for whatever expenses kind of came up, then the fundraising pretty much stopped after the election, so you weren't getting some of the best and the brightest if it meant that they had to constantly be paying for the, that position. So making sure that there was fundraising going on throughout the year, along with um, publicity being done uh, by the National Committee and not just waiting for the other parts uh, to, or the, the candidates to, to front that money themselves. And they thought that the Democrats should be getting together a little bit more frequently as a national apparatus. So, from there, Franklin Roosevelt then you know sends this letter out to about a thousand individuals, and I believe he wasn't necessarily expecting the results back that he received. He thought that uh, he would send this out, people would see his name attached and say, "You know, what a good job he had done, and I agree with your pretty you know straightforward attempts at repeal and instead, Everybody takes this as an opportunity, while I have you here to really let Franklin Roosevelt and, you know, knowing that he's going to share these messages, but let the rest of the party know. Here are our gripes. And so, as I pointed out, the Democrats have complaints, uh, really kind of all along, a lot of the lines. When I started writing out my dissertation, I divided the letters into different subcategories and tried to divide them then. Also by the region that they got from, just so I could start to analyze kind of where certain um, consistencies started to emerge. You know, where were some of those complaints repeated a lot. And so, for instance, I, I divided them into four regions. So the Northeast, the Midwest, the South and the West, and then different categories that I started to see show up again and again and again. One of the biggest ones was going to be that they should stop putting forward their candidates early and focus on the fundamentals of the party really get back to what it meant to be a democrat now what it meant to be a democrat was kind of up (laughs) in the eye of the beholder but that they should stop um, putting forward a candidate and then having to live with that person so you know, rather than having Al Smith and William Gibbs McAdoo kind of hovering over the party apparatus, you would force them to absorb what the party stood for first and foremost. A lot of complaints from certain regions about the two-thirds rule and the unit rule, and that had to do with the nominating convention. The two-thirds rule, like I said, had a lot to do with who was the nominee, where you needed to have two-thirds of the voting convention on your side. Now, positively, you know, when Andrew Jackson first put that in place in the 1830s, that meant that the Democratic candidate had the support of almost all of the Democrats who were voting. Now, with candidates as fractious as McAdoo and Smith, it meant that it was really difficult to get to that threshold. And so doing away with that and saying, let's just reach a majority, that was a lot more doable than that two thirds. The unit rule was designed to keep states Voting their entire contingent. So, um, all of the state of Florida, for example, would vote for the same candidate. Now, doing away with that meant that each uh, delegate had their own voice, and you can see where that would be more democratic than this rule. One of the big complaints among certain regions was against the Bryan brothers. That's William Jennings Bryan, who had been the nominee in. 1896, 1900, and 1908, he had thought he would be the nominee in 1912, and 1920 uh, served as Secretary of State at the beginning of Woodrow Wilson's administration and really kind of was a thorn in the side of the party's efforts to become more progressive. Uh, He started to become really conservative in his old age, and when he showed up at the 1924 convention was big on kind of um, silencing any of the complaints against the Ku Klux Klan, did not want to revisit the issue of Prohibition. And so there were a lot of Democrats who wrote back to Roosevelt saying, the sooner we get away from William Jennings Bryan, who happened to die that year, he would die in 1925, um, the sooner we get away from William Jennings Bryan, kind of the better. His brother Charles Bryan was the governor of Nebraska and he got chosen as, the vice presidential nominee in 1924. So um, he kind of gets lumped in there with his older brother in that people were ready to kind of move on from the two of them. A lot of Democrats were embarrassed at what had gone down at the convention, that it took 17 days to resolve a winner, that all of this fighting had been done on the radio, that people were reading it almost as kind of a tabloid fixture for those two weeks. It did not look good for the party. And so saying... You know, the Republicans have their act together. They get things done behind the scenes. And when they show up at the convention, it's all about proclaiming the positivity of that person. So let's do that. And that is going to go a long way towards the streamlined conventions that we're more familiar with today. Of course, you have other Democrats who are kind of all over the map in terms of what they should do about the Ku Klux Klan some say, you know, kind of let it go, don't make an issue of it ever again. Others say, no, we're better than this. We should be denouncing it a lot more vociferously than what we're doing. And then there's the old tried and true kind of ideological divide where some Democrats want to become a conservative party, others want to become a progressive party, others want to become a liberal party. You have some who call themselves liberal conservatives or progressive Uh, conservatives or progressive liberals and it's really kind of all over the map in terms of how they see themselves. So then Franklin Roosevelt takes those responses and he starts organizing a few things. He wants to put together a meeting of national democrats to start convening a little more regularly than what had happened. Um, He doesn't get the support of every democrat and so that idea kind of falls by the wayside. But behind the scenes he really does start to put together a new interest in kind of defining what it means to be a Democrat. He looks up, for instance, Hollins Randolph and Claude Bowers and starts talking to them about writing a kind of agreed-upon tome that would chart the history of Thomas Jefferson and this kind of democratic ideal. And so when Claude Bowers kind of takes him up on this idea and in 1925 publishes this book called... Uh, Jefferson and Hamilton, where he really does kind of lay out exactly what he thinks the Democratic Party has always meant or has always been. It's here that I really start to see the kind of ideological maturity of Franklin Roosevelt. I don't believe he's really thought about what the party meant to him before. And so this, I think, is an important moment in terms of giving us the Franklin Roosevelt of the 1930s who will become increasingly uh, aggressive when it comes to uh, being all about a party that reflects his own understanding and his own values. And you know, when we look at the purge of 1938, uh, the court packing scheme, his runs for a third and fourth term It really does take on the party of Roosevelt and not so much the party of Jefferson or the old Democratic Party. And I think that's a very big um, idea for uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Certainly when the book is published, Franklin Roosevelt, as a historian at Harvard, he only writes one book review in his entire life, and that's over this book. And at the end, the review is titled, Is There a Jefferson on the Horizon? And he ends by saying um, that Hamiltons we have today, is there a Jefferson on the horizon? Is there somebody who the party can kind of galvanize behind and uh, will speak up for the kind of um, downtrodden, laborers of this country um, really kind of uh, linking into this farmer mentality that he believed Thomas Jefferson um, always had. And from that moment on, I really do believe that Franklin Roosevelt's political future is kind of charted by um, always kind of going back to this notion of a political mandate that's built on access to individuals. Now, that doesn't always... Uh, come to the fore, but when we think about him first as governor of New York and then eventually as president, there really is a kind of transactional element to his governing, that he uh, wants the support of a large number of the people, and in return, he will give them things. And I don't mean that in an entirely cynical way of you know trading votes for um, opportunity or for welfare but certainly showing them that the government is listening to them, the government is engaged. When we look at the Great Depression and the fallout and then the New Deal administration under Franklin Roosevelt, a lot of it isn't necessarily about those um, agencies all being something that can work forever or being uh, a long-term solution. He's really interested at showing people This is what I'm willing to do. This is where our energy is devoted. And if it works, cool. If it doesn't, you know, maybe not so cool, but at least we're trying something. And I think that governing ethic really starts to emerge in the fallout of this circular letter and getting a a reorientation of Franklin Roosevelt's political interests. Certainly from there, I kind of look at, you know, how that plays out during his administration and uh, certainly I think it's an interesting project of course I'm a, a bit biased but uh, I do think that it gives us you know looking at the circular letter does give us certainly a, a up close and personal look at history not just from the political elite you know people like Franklin Roosevelt and the the major candidates but also for one of the first times ever we get the responses of Democrats nationwide people who you know, I had never heard of before, and in trying to locate some of them, you know, they they really aren't standouts, but they did feel at this moment that their voice was being heard by a Democratic leader, and it happened to be a guy who would run the country for 12 years and really redefine the Democratic Party for the rest of the 20th century. So if you're interested (laughs) in Franklin Roosevelt and kind of charting his political rise or looking at how a party kind of confronts these moments. I think the dissertation kind of is a a good way to, to, to look at it. For the purposes of this podcast, I know it's important to think about, um, you know, how to be actionable about projects like these. And I want to point out that I found these records and was able to access them. I had to do a lot of digging into secondary characters and in some cases kind of third stringers and try to find documents in kind of far-flung places. Um, It's always engaging to be in an archive and to be able to... Uh, find the documents written by the individuals. Part of the problem of writing a dissertation is you have to know both what you want to go in that final document and also what you have to kind of leave on the side. And so when putting this together, I would find correspondence for instance from Babe Ruth writing to Franklin Roosevelt about um, his fondness for Al Smith as a democratic candidate um, And, you know, as much as I would love to include that in my writing, it just didn't fit. (laughs) Uh, Maybe down the road, it would be something worth pursuing. But you always come across, you know, some of those hidden gems that, you know, really stop and make you rethink about, you know, what you thought you knew about a certain project or a certain person. You know, in terms of the way I view Franklin Roosevelt, I told people, it really made me stop and think about his humanity about the way that he was just like any of us you know sometimes we get these kind of vaunted notions you know the mount rushmore effect you know where you go to washington dc and you see these men made of um, marble or you know uh, lucite or whatever whatever it might be and these are going to be the people that we kind of hang our our nation's past and future on And when you get to read the personal correspondence of a man like Franklin Roosevelt, you recognize that he's kind of like the rest of us. He has insecurities. He has, of course, uh, massive anxieties about his political future, about his health, about what's happening for his party. And he deals with it in in different ways. And so um, it really did make me kind of humanize him in a way that I don't think I had before. Where I think this project could get, go down the road, I want to kind of rework it to also look at the 1968 Democratic uh, Convention and fall out there where uh, George McGovern shows up after the fractious 68 Convention after Bobby Kennedy was killed and Eugene McCarthy was kind of at the last minute usurped by uh, the vice president, Hubert Humphrey. And then the Democrats go on to lose anyway and kind of compare how in the fallout you could look at Franklin Roosevelt reframing the party in 1924 and George McGovern in 1968, beginning the primary process that we're kind of familiar with today, where you do give direct access to um, the American populace and members of your party and how in both of those cases these guys um do create a political future for themselves, but also have a huge impact on us today. I'm still looking for the modern analog for how a party recovers from a huge loss like this. And so certainly thinking about the Democratic Party of 2017 and 2018 and how they internalize and then build upon um, some of the lessons learned by the defeat of Hillary Clinton uh, by Donald Trump, you know, that's going to be a project that I think maybe down the road I can make uh, this kind of through line between these three big defeats and in you know, how the party kind of comes back from them. So it's really my project kind of in a nutshell. I hope you've learned something from it. Uh, the dissertation is available on OhioLink, repository for all of the dissertations and uh, theses from the Ohio universities so if you're interested in it it's called a party in peril franklin roosevelt the democratic party and the circular letter of 1924 Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you about my project